I am Vicky Murillo, the director of the Institute of Latin American Studies and a professor in the departments of political science and the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. I am your host in this podcast series called Unpacking Latin America, which introduces to our audiences the faculty and researchers working on Latin America at Columbia University and how their work contributes to our understanding of the region and beyond. Our guest today is Miguel Urquiola, who is professor and chair of the Department of Economics at Columbia University. He is also a member of the faculty of the School of International and Public Affairs and of the Columbia Committee on the Economics of Education. Miguel is also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and has held appointments at Cornell University, the World Bank, the Bolivian Catholic University and the Bolivian government. As you might have guessed, Miguel is originally from Bolivia, but he pursued his university education in the United States and received his PhD from University of California, Berkeley. His work is on the economics of education. He specializes on how schools and universities compete and how that affects educational outcomes. His most recent book studies why American universities excel at research and is called Markets, Minds and Money and has been published by Harvard University Press. Hello, Miguel, and thank you for joining us at the show. It's a real pleasure, Vicky. Thank you for having me. Let's start how I always start this episode, asking you about your trajectory and what brought you to study economics and to specialize on the economics of education. So for the, for the first part of the question, what brought me to economics, I guess that the answer is fairly standard. Uh, <laughs> like, like many people, uh, I got to college and I, I should say like many Latin Americans was motivated by understanding what was behind many economic crises and many economic phenomena that we see. And then like many, you know, like many, many people just taking courses and stuff like that, I came upon economics and liked the tools that it gave to address, you know, to sort of let one think of these things. As far as to how I got into the specialty of the economics of education, that is a little bit more particular perhaps. I had studied, like many Latin Americans who did economics at the undergraduate level, I wanted to be a macroeconomist. And after college, I worked in Bolivia and I worked for an outfit that was part of the Ministry of Finance that was doing research. I wanted to work there and they told me they could hire me, but they said, we're full up on macroeconomists. We need someone to tell us stuff about educational finance to sort of follow the educational side of government expenditure. And so then I started working on education and never left, basically. That's interesting. And um, is Latin America important for your work? How it relates your experience in the region and your work? I think you started talking about that. Right. So it's it's definitely crucially important. Most of my work, as you mentioned, has been on sort of educational competition. And actually how I worked into that has very much to do with Latin America or how I got into that. When I started working, as I mentioned, out in Bolivia, uh, the the director of the research arm I was working with said, you know, you're one of the first economists in this particular place working on education, there was another person working with me. And he said, why don't both of you go to Chile for a week and sort of see what's going on there? Chile is always an interesting example to look at. It's always kind of at the forefront in Latin America as far as reforms and stuff like this. And so we did it. It was, it was fascinating to me, not surprisingly. And one thing that I observed in Chile was, of course, this voucher system and was sort of what an educational market could look like and what might happen there. I obviously didn't have many you know, that was just when I was very young and starting to look at this, but it was truly, in that sense, a formative thing. In some sense, I never left that question. And then I worked on these issues in different countries in Latin America, as you've mentioned also in the U.S. more recently. But yeah, so, you know, Latin America has been key to getting me there. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Latin America before we shift to education. Mm -hmm. What I want to talk about is the role that you had in LACEA, which stands for Latin American and the Caribbean Economic Association. And the reason I want to ask you about it is that economics has been defined in a very universal way and mostly devoid of geographic context, at least in the American academia. So what was the goal of LACEA and how do you evaluate its effect among economies working on Latin America? Right. So I'm not perfectly placed to answer this question in, in the sense that I, I did participate in LACEA pretty much from the get-go. I think I was there for like the second conference. It's not that old. It may be like 15 or 20 years old. On the other hand, you know, at the time I was very young and so I was certainly not involved in the creation. Uh, people like Albert Fischler, who we know very well here, Nora Lustig and, and others, you know, Calvo basically were, were involved in it. So I'm not perfectly placed to say what the goal was. But I think, you know, what I can say as a participant, the goal was basically to give economists in Latin America a kind of reference point, much as the, as the American Economic Association is in the US. As you said, economics is basically not specific to any particular region. More than creating that, I think it was just the need to create like a community. And I think it's been tremendously successful in that way, in the sense that it has ongoing meetings every year at which there's a large number of presentations, and I would say a dense, kind of dense communities have been formed. It has groups in economics of crime, economics of health, labor economics, macroeconomics, and finance. And so I think that it sort of tried to create community across countries, and it largely succeeded. I, it, it definitely succeeded, I think, and it was, I think that was the intent. I don't know if you want me to elaborate on that. Or no, I mean, I, that was my question. So it, that, it did create a community. So you feel it affected how you work in the sense of generating that community for your work that's within the region across countries and people in the U.S.? I think so. I mean, I think I was a little bit, you know, so I was uh, already in graduate school when it started or, you know, about to finish up at Berkeley. And in, in some sense, I was already in a community of people working in economics in Latin America. So for me personally, maybe it wasn't like a huge game changer, but I think it has been a game changer in many places in ways that I've been personally able to see in Bolivia, for example, which is you know one of the poorer countries in the region easily, and also as a result one of the ones where the academic uh, group was smaller and also was not quite as advanced. Uh, I think Lasse had a great impact. It basically gave an example as to how you could do this. It's been an example that's been picked up by many people, and you know one final example of this would be that the main conference of Lasse itself was hosted in Santa Cruz in basically Bolivia, maybe three or four years ago which took tremendous work, but basically showed a real commitment from the academic community there to do it. And I think it showed kind of like how this can end. And I was happy to help with that. But, you know, as, as I say, for me personally, I was already kind of connected, but it's really created a lot of community in that way. So shifting now to education, and especially to your work related to Latin America, since your most recent work has been on the U.S., you share with me an article about evidence-based education policies, that is for our audience policies, which are based on research for which we have relatively a lot, you know, some confidence that the policy or the intervention is what caused the fact that we observe. And I was puzzled by the comparison between Latin America and the rest of the world. Latin America as a region, given the level of income of the countries, has more coverage in pre-primary, primary and secondary education than you would expect. However, when you shift from access and start looking at the quality of education as measured by standardized tests, the countries in Latin America are included in this international test. All of them rank below you, what you would expect given their level of income. In fact, the United States is the other outlier that has a similar behavior. So do you have any sense of what produces this paradox? 
Right. As you mentioned, this paradox arises at some level, both uh, in the U.S. and in Latin America, that both do really well at getting, you know, better than you'd expect given their income at getting kids into school and worse than you'd expect at kind of making sure that they learn as measured by test scores. I don't think that there is a single answer to this or like I don't think that the literature has come up to a definitive answer on why this is that. I'm surely there are many factors that can contribute. One thing I would think that is true in both places is that sometimes when you try to expand uh, system quickly and to expand it drastically, which both places experienced only that the U.S. did it much earlier than Latin America, you will get lower quality. And the lower quality comes in part because you're trying to incorporate massive amounts of kids who are less prepared for school into the system. And because at some level you're less prepared. And so I think that that's probably a common theme in both places. I think that's part of the story in both places. But there could be surely other explanations too. And I think that the bottom line is, uh, I don't think we have a full explanation for that, but I think that the rapid expansion is part of it. A lot of your work studies the impact of competition on education, which is a very hot topic in Latin America and in the United States as well. In particular, as you describe of this formative experience in Chile, you have analyzed the impact of vouchers that allow parents to choose uh, publicly subsidized private education, uh, both in Colombia and in Chile in your work. Um, what have we learned from those experiences? What is the impact of school vouchers and school choice on student learning? Are there effects on different dimensions of learning? This is a good question. So I think that, you know, when I started working on this, it, it was at some point in the 1990s. And I think that, so this, this idea of giving people vouchers so that they can choose private schools has been around for a long time in economics, since at least the 1950s, thanks to Milton Friedman. I do think that for a long time there wasn't much evidence on what it exactly would would cause, and also there wasn't that much theory even in in, in economics. It's It's been accumulating over time. If you look at what happened in Chile and in other countries like Sweden and also Colombia, I think I take two lessons from it. One is that one thing that definitely happens when there's choice and there are vouchers that perhaps was underappreciated to start is that there is a lot of what we would call sorting or what sometimes sociologists call like stratification that basically like people will tend to congregate with like. So if you give people freedom to choose schools, uh, rich may end up with the rich, the poor with the poor, this type with that type, the smart with the smart, and so on and so forth. And I think that was not fully appreciated ex ante. The other big question, of course, would be what happens to learning or to the or to sort of quality or to the productivity of the school sector. And at some level, the promise that Friedman held on vouchers was that that would really improve. And I think that one lesson there is that that can be more mixed than we expect, that basically the results may not be as positive as we expect. And I can elaborate on that if you want me to. But Yeah, in fact, my next question was exactly on this effect of stratification, of sorting that seems to be resulting from vouchers, both on socioeconomic dimensions or other ethnic identity or religious dimensions. And it seems to be very relevant in the discussion, for instance, in the case of Chile, where it's the country that has been the longest. And in fact, in the current protest, Chile has been living since the month of October for several months, a lot of right. political protests. But these competition and vouchers in particular have been associated to privilege and stratification to the point that protests are even against taking exams. I mean, the, the last university exam has Correct. been uh, affected by boycotts. So what does your work tell us about the effects on education and the effects on other uh, aspects of people's lives that have produced this level of dissatisfaction and what would have been a different design that might have produced a different effect? Right. So as, as, as I mentioned, vouchers have probably produced some disappointment. And I would basically say that there's been disappointment on two fronts. The first front is for policymakers, people like 
like you and me, maybe academics, which is that the impact of choice on learning or on school quality is lower than, than expected. Uh, why is this? Uh, I've, I've worked on this quite a bit. I mean, my best sense is that probably what ends up happening is that when there can be a lot of sorting, when, as you said, you know, people can separate based on religion, based on ethnicity, based on income, when that happens, it becomes harder for the consumer, for someone like you choosing a school for your daughter, to see what school may be productive at teaching. It gets harder to observe because basically some schools are doing really well because they get the smart kids or the rich kids and it's not clear that it's because they're teaching really well. The other thing that basically happens is that your preferences as a parent become less responsive to how they're teaching and more to who's where. And I think that contrary to what happens in many markets where economists, I think, rightly believe that the market can yield good outcomes, what happens in this market is that basically choices and competition start to happen on a margin that from the policymaker's point of view is not the desirable margin. It's not on which school teaches better or which one has higher productivity, as an economist would say, but really which one is offering the right friends for your children. So that's the disappointment that comes on the side of the policymaker. And then what you mentioned that one can see in Chile is very different. It's a disappointment on the part of people in the system, mainly on the part of the people that, for lack of a better term, we might call the excluded, because basically when you see that a system starts to stratify in the sense that there are schools that are full of you know, kids who have more money or kids who do well for whatever reason, and you're not in those schools and you're in different schools, then you might start to think this system is rigged against me at some level or I feel excluded. Uh, and I think that Chile, for the past number of years, you know better than me, uh, the, this part sort of politically has been challenged by this a lot, that people feel that there's exclusion and that the school system or the educational system is one place where this is really manifested, including, as you mentioned last week, by kids refusing to take kind of college or, you know, trying to sabotage college admissions exams, that on the one hand, you think those are well designed and they should work well, but kids are upset. And so this is kind of an intractable situation. Your final question was like, what could one have done differently? How could you have designed this system differently? So I think that if I could take a time machine back to 1980 and knew all I know now and was able to talk to the designers, it would be hard to change what they did. But I think that the key area I would have tried to do is to not make it as easy for people to sort out. So for example, schools in Chile have historically been able to accept anyone they want and reject anyone they, they want. In retrospect, I think that the U.S. offers perhaps a better model with charter schools where you can come in and compete. I'd be fine if like for-profit companies can run a charter school, but they're kind of told if you're oversubscribed, you have to use a lottery to admit. Basically, do things that make it more salient. Are you a good school at teaching or not? And less salient, who are you getting into your school and make it harder for you to just build a reputation on who you get into your school as opposed to how good you are as a teacher or as teachers. That's, the, that's what I would have changed if I could. The evidence that you analyze is based on experiments where the policy was randomly applied to some citizens and not to others with an equal probability of receiving it so that both groups can be compared to measure the effects or by comparisons that were very similar but the people received or did not receive the policy or the experience. As those that cases in which you compare students who barely pass an exam with those that barely fail to pass the exam, right? So these techniques are devised to identify the cause and the effect. Um, and in fact, the winners of last year Nobel Prize in Economics specialize in this type of research, this kind of evidence-based research, including in the area of education. So what do we learn from this literature that can produce a policy consensus in education across different countries and more important in Latin America? I mean, there's a lot of debate now on what to do with education in Latin America and what are the lessons from this literature to improve education, and what are the limits of what can we learn from this literature in terms of policy transfers? 
Right. So you make reference to this very large literature in economics now that uses experiments that are at some level kind of what health people would call clinical trials. I don't do many of those myself. I have done some, but I certainly draw on them. I think it's a very promising area of work that must be seen as also having limitations. As you say, the the key promise is that just like a clinical trial in medicine, it can tell you credibly this is the effect of this drug. And so you could say, you know, this is the effect of a voucher or this is the effect of this health policy. So I think that's the big advantage. And I think rightly they have received lots of energy and rightly they have grown. The limitation comes, as you mentioned, because it's not always clear that what happens in one country when you do this intervention is going to happen in a different country. Or I would say it even goes a little bit beyond that. Like I've done work related to the fact that you could have a policy that works at a small scale in a country and it works well. And then when you try to scale it up, it changes. The effects change because there's, there's different factors responding. People realize what, uh, what you're doing and so on and so forth. So I, I would say that it is, it is a highly promising area of work. At the same time, one has to be very careful extrapolating across countries. And as I say, even within country, it certainly has limitations. And I think that even the research in education exposes and kind of, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, but exposes and illustrates and sort of like helps see how these, how these limitations come into play. Thanks. You have worked not just on Chile, but also on Colombia, the country. Mm -hmm. And your work on Colombia seeks to understand the impact of university choice for students taking advantage of the fact that Colombia has both entry exams and exit exams, right? To measure what they learn in university and what they know before they enter the labor market. And, and so this allow you to test really what that effect that you mentioned, what is the teaching effect. So what do you find is the value added given by different types of universities in Colombia? Right. So in, in that work, as, as you mentioned, we're getting at the fact that um, schools in general, universities in particular, may have different productivities in different dimensions, right? So, for example, the idea in that paper is that using these exams, as you say, exams coming in and leaving university, you can sort of uh, rank universities as at how good they are at teaching kids in a given field. And the, we looked at many fields like economics, but also like orthodontics and psychology, kind of all over the map. And then we can also look at how good universities are at given your characteristics, do you make money afterwards? Uh, and so the punchline of that work is basically that these things need not be perfectly correlated and that people may rationally choose different ones. I also have theoretical work in this area. So for example, you could think of a university that does not teach you very well, but places you extremely well into the job market and vice versa. Universities that may be public, some of them we find, that teach very well in a given field, but don't maybe give you the contacts or you know the, the network that you need to get the job that you really want. And this gets back to the stuff I mentioned in Chile. As a consumer there, what do you do? You say, well, if my objective in life is a good job, I'm going to be willing to go to the university that gets me the good job, even if it means it's the one that does not teach me as well how to be an engineer. And so we try to illustrate that these trade-offs can arise. And again, these are trade-offs that we really should not, you know, that in a perfectly functioning market, we might not see, right? The, the, the highest ranked firm should be doing the best in all dimensions, but that in the educational market, we do see, I think. So given those findings and given how salient is this issue of university choice in, I mean, in the United States, of course, but also in Chile, in Peru, mm -hmm. in Ecuador, in many countries in the region, what do we learn from these studies that you have done in Colombia where the data is so good and you have both types of exams to teach, to provide policy lessons more generally for the region? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that if you take it at face value, you would think that these trade-offs should arise elsewhere. And I think that these trade-offs, uh, you know, for example, I think that they probably arise in, in the U.S. as well. 
beyond that, I'm not sure that they have a specific uh, message. I think one message that does arise from the case of Colombia that is not a shock because it arises in Peru and in Chile also is that this is, by the time you get to higher education sectors that function well or not are not about a test score. They can be about things like debt, right? So you'll, you'll basically see situations in Peru, in Chile, in basically Colombia and in the U.S where you have universities that are selling a service that then is correlated with high levels of debt that then don't produce the returns that people expected and then create a lot of unhappiness where this is expressed from, you know, riots in Chile to, uh, you know, without casting aspersions, but to sort of proposals for, for free college in Chile and in the U.S. in the present election. So I would say that basically one thing that comes out, and this is not like rocket science, that once you get at that level, whether a market works well or not is going to have kind of major implications for people's financial welfare and even for like basically political outcomes, I think, at that point. So your native Bolivia has recently experienced also protests and a political yes. crisis. For our listeners, let me explain that the crisis started with protests against the manipulation of electoral results after President Evo Morales had ignored the negative result of a plebiscite and did not accept his result and instead ran for his third re-election. After the election happened and there was thought about that there was electoral manipulation, university students, among others, started protests. They were followed by a police strike. And then the military request the resignation of the president, who had to leave Bolivia and exile first in Mexico and then in Argentina. And last week, uh, the interim president, Janine Añez, announced that she will run in the upcoming elections and ask her cabinet to resign in preparation for her electoral campaign. Although this is interesting, she had not been a presidential candidate in the October elections, uh, where the two contenders were former President Morales and another former President Carlos Mesa. So the situation is, to say the least, quite fluid, fluid in Bolivia. Yes. <laughs> so, but, so I'm not going to ask you about the political crisis, but I want to move to the question of education in Bolivia. There is a lot written on the three administration of Evo Morales, and in general, economists like Nora Lustig, for instance, have suggested that Bolivia experienced a decline in inequality and poverty during the tenure of Evo Morales that's even larger than other countries in Latin America. And this reduction in inequality in Latin America in general has been associated by her and others during the, during the 2000s with declines in the return to education that comes back to this issue of the rapid expansion yeah. of education. Um, so what is your evaluation of education policies under the Morales administration, setting aside the political aspect? And how do you think they impacted on inequality and poverty versus other dimensions? That's a good question. And I think it's, it's one that's hard to answer. I would have to say that if we had to evaluate the education policies under Morales, I would say that the first pass answer would be that we can't. The reason for that is basically, you know, since you obviously follow Argentina, you will be well-versed in this, uh, something happened in the educational sector in basically Bolivia under Morales that is analogous to what happened with the economic sector under Kirchner in Argentina or under that Kirchner, which is that statistics became hard to follow and they basically disappeared at some level. How did this happen in the case of education in Bolivia? The country had had a series of short but useful series of, for example, standardized test scores mostly national uh, without participation in international tests mainly, but those disappeared. The data on enrollment and stuff like that became unreliable or hard to access and stuff like this. So I would say that at a first pass level, it's hard to know what happened. And it's unfortunate kind of that the, that the statistical infrastructure disappeared. I think that once one gets past that and sort of tries to make the best that, that one can uh, 
with the data, it is possible that enrollment in Bolivia even went down during this period. That, that is that fewer kids went to school at different educational levels. And so my guess is that at the end of the day, probably the educational sector contributed very little to the poverty reduction or the improvement in income, income distribution that people like Lustig uh, point to. Those things indeed happened, and they happened for reasons that have to do much more with you know, macro conditions, with the price of, of raw materials and stuff like that, and much less with anything that the educational sector really wanted to do. And in a way, this is unfortunate because, you know, it was probably one of the many areas where the Morales government probably had a, a significant opportunity to do stuff. And in my observation, this basically didn't happen. Do you think it affected other aspects that are not inequality and poverty? The educational sector? The education policy? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it must have some type of impact. I mean, it, it did interact. So, for example, one thing that the Morales government did do is pass out, as many Latin American governments do, pass out these sort of kind of conditional cash transfer uh, bonuses that, you know, let kids go to school. So it interacted with things like that. Those are tied with poverty reduction. My understanding of how those operated in basically Bolivia is that, that the conditional was removed, so that basically there were cash transfers handed out at school, uh, whether you went to school or not. So this illustrates that at some level that they, you know, that this policy wasn't really being used at some level to address the educational sector itself, but it let the educational sector interact with things like poverty reduction and so on and so forth. My guess would be, and there's data on this, I don't know it particularly well, is that that was not the main source of poverty reduction. It was just economic growth and kind of increasing incomes, but surely it contributed. So finally, I want to talk about your recent book, which analyzed the role of competition and inequality to explain the excellence of American universities. So can you tell our listeners what is that you perceive that is a positive value in this case for inequality in higher education, which is a very contested area. Mm -hmm. And to what extent, you know, what are the lessons that you draw from the American experience? Can that be that experience be reproduced by other countries in other contexts, especially by the Latin American countries? Right. So that's a good question. As you say, basically, in, in that book, what I try to do is to explain I look at the case of the U.S., right, which is a country that relative to wealthy countries, such as it is, has a bad educational performance in many areas. And yet we see one area where it does extremely well, which is it basically produces a handful or like say 10 to, 10 to 100 research universities that do extremely well and that are easily amongst the leaders in the world. And the story in the book is one where basically competition and at some level, as you mentioned, inequality have basically uh, let this be feasible. And so it is a story. I think that basically the, the key takeaway from my early work and from the book that I would point to is basically in education, market is not, it's not a silver bullet. It's not something that always helps or always hurts. It can be something that can help a lot or it can be something that actually hinders quite a bit. And so I often like to use this English phrase thinking about markets in education where is this, this red herring, something that, that sort of confuses from the main issue. The main issue is does a market work well or not, not necessarily is it free or not, or are there private providers or not. And so th that the story is basically that just as I mentioned in Chile, for example, stratification and freedom to choose might sometimes get in the way of the optimal, optimal operation of the educational market. In the case of universities in the US, stratification and stuff like that works well. Uh, why is it that it works well? I would say that one key reason, uh, one key issue is that in at the research level, I think it is uh, much easier for universities like Columbia or like any other one, like Johns Hopkins, to identify people who can do research well. And so you kind of you can identify uh, good human capital fairly easily, easily, and then thanks to it, to inequality, you kind of give it lots of money and give it lots of resources to work with. 
This is different in schools where I think, for example, it's much harder for a school to find a teacher who teaches well. We know that good teachers exist. We know that bad teacher, teacher, ex teachers exist. It's hard to identify them, basically. And so I would say that the lesson I would take for other countries, including Latin America, is that you kind of have to pick and choose, and it's not easy, where you want to really use market forces in education and where they might be tricky. And I think that you know the US has happened to the right combination in some areas and to the bad combination in other areas. And I don't think there's a single recipe for this, but basically Latin America is much like the US in the sense that it's kind of like, there's a lot of market forces and there's a fair amount of chaos allowed. To the extent that what, for example, Latin American universities are mainly producing is research, which we know is not mainly the case in many countries, that would work well, but that's not what's mainly being produced. To the extent that what's mainly being produced are degrees that people will hope will turn into, say, income in the labor market later on, it's trickier. And so, you know, I think that it's a kind of a cautionary tale that you have to be careful with markets in, in education. They can be very good, but that's not guaranteed. Thank you, Miguel. This has been an extremely interesting conversation. And thank to our listeners for hearing us. Our show is produced by Stephen Calabria from FM and AM Productions. Our music was produced by Manuel Garcia Orozco, who is pursuing his PhD in the music department at Columbia. And I invite you to check out the Institute of Latin American Studies at Columbia University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Goodbye. Thanks a lot, Vicky. Thank you.